0: Once again, it is good to see each and every one of you again here today, especially as we have some missing due to COVID exposure. That reminds us that uh, it's a special mercy every time we're here in these days, and we bless the Lord for that. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. For several months, we've taken a break from our series of sermons on the book of Genesis. We have done that in order that I might preach to you concerning the providence of God, and especially the providence of God as it relates to some of the crises that have come upon our country this year. And there are aspects of the doctrine of providence that we did not cover. It was never our intention to cover every aspect of the subject. And it was only my intention to preach on those aspects that were most relevant to our recent crises as a nation. And having done this, we return now to the book of Genesis this morning, and I want to read from Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Once again, let's pray for the help of God. Most blessed and glorious God, the majesty and simplicity of the account that we have read a portion of just now, it once again strikes us and it causes us to bow before you, to confess that you alone are God and we are your creatures. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the one who stretched forth the the stars and the planets like a curtain. And you are the one also who stooped to take the dust of the ground and make man in his own image. We pray now, O Lord, that you'd be pleased to take your word and uh, write it upon our hearts. We pray that especially as we consider some errors in connection with how to interpret your word, we pray that you would help us by your spirit. We pray it all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Although the doctrine of providence is especially relevant to the crises that we've been going through as a nation, the creation account also speaks to the issues of our own day. And there are certain biblical themes that seem to be relevant to virtually every situation, and the doctrine of creation is one of those types of themes. The protests and the riots of 2020, They have brought the whole subject of racism to the forefront of our national discussion. And the protests and these riots, they focus upon that. It's always something that people bring up in political years, but especially this year. And what most people don't appreciate is the fact that historically the belief in Darwinian evolution accelerates racism. The year 2020 is the 100th anniversary of a book that was one of the most influential books of the 20th century. It's the book The Outline of History by H.G. Wells. And as a writer who was famous for his book The War of the Worlds, a writer who was nominated for a Nobel Prize four times and was on the cover of Time magazine in 1926, Wells was an aggressive advocate of socialism, Darwinian evolution, and atheism. And his was an evolutionary vision of mankind. And he described his vision in these words, uh, At first, mankind at first scattered and blind and utterly confused, feeling its way slowly to the serenity and salvation of an ordered and coherent purpose. Now these kind of words, they're like sweet brandy that go down really easy and smooth. Who's against serenity and salvation? You see how this guy's away with words. But in his first major work as a social and political commentator, his work Anticipations, Wells did not hide his true feelings about what he called the swarms of black and brown and dirty white and yellow people. The world is a world, and not a charitable institution and I take it they will have to go it is their portion to die out and disappear now it's hard to imagine a famous author getting no, n- nominated four times for nobel and that it, it's hard to imagine today that he would get away with saying those kinds of things but you see darwinian darwin's evolutionary dogma you see of the survival of the fittest This fed right into this idea that some people just need to die out because the better ones need to come to the top and, whew, I'm glad I'm one of the better ones, and uh, on we go. But on the other hand, there's nothing that demolishes racism more than the doctrine of creation, the doctrine that God has made from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, as Paul puts it in Acts chapter 17. And this biblical doctrine of creation in the fall, it also has something to say about the clamor to defund the police. Yes, better training and increased accountability, these are important steps that need to be taken. And there are times when trained mental health experts might be more effective in talking down a psychotic individual than some policeman that doesn't know how to deal with that kind of a situation. But ever since the fall, Man has rebelled against his creator, and Cain has been murdering Abel. It's always going to happen. And yes, providing better education opportunities and offering ways to get out of the hood, these things ought to be considered. But until Jesus comes, there's always going to be a need for policemen. And if you take them away, you strip them down, murders increase, violent crime increases. And so from the way the doctrines of creation and the fall address racism and violent crime, I trust you can see that our studies in Genesis 1 to 3 are exceedingly relevant to what we are going through as a nation. Now as we return this morning to the place where we were when we temporarily departed from it back in March, in our last sermon in this series, I want to just remind you where we were. We preached, it was way back eight months ago, March 8th. And we began to examine a couple of the ways by which some people have interpreted the six days of creation. And through the centuries, Christians have held that the scriptures are inerrant and infallible. And those Christians that believe this Bible is infallible, they have differed nevertheless how, over how to interpret. The six days of creation. And those who believe that the Bible teaches that creation took place in six 24-hour days, these include greats like Calvin and Thornwell and Burkhoff, but there are some others of equal stature, such as Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield, that believe that the six days of Genesis 1 are not limited to uh, six 24-hour days. And therefore... It's an established fact that godly believers who have given their lives to the study and proclamation of God's word, they have differed over the interpretation of the six days. And all of them completely agree on the utter truthfulness of God's word if they're evangelicals. And they agree that the Genesis account is factual, that's historical. And likewise, they're on the same page about the historicity of Adam and Eve as God's creation, They all agree about the tragic reality of the fall. And therefore, while there are some interpretations of Genesis 1 that are expressions of rank unbelief, we mustn't brand genuine believers that have some differences of interpretation as heretics. And yet, having pled for charity for people like that, I have to say again, as I did back in March, I'm profoundly disappointed in some that take these interpretations, and I can't, I can't refrain from expressing this. And I believe that their willingness to accommodate the teaching of the Bible to the consensus opinion of unbelievers, this has serious consequences. And it's for this reason that we are constrained to take the time to refute two theories that have been advanced by many evangelicals to accommodate Genesis 1 to the so-called facts of modern science. And these two theories are the day-age view and the analogical day view. Now, in our last sermon in this series, I gave you a description of these views, and then I began to give you some reasons why we reject them. And in our next sermon, I want to come to a different view, the so-called framework hypothesis about the days of Genesis 1. But this morning, we want to finish what we started back in March, and I want to respond to these two views, the day-age view and the analogical day, because these are uh, very similar to one another. And in many ways, what we're going to cover is the kind of stuff that I would prefer to cover in a Sunday school class or as we were doing so in an afternoon and not in our morning worship. In a sense, this is going to be something kind of lecture-like this morning. And yet I'll do my best to try to be concise and try to bring some applications uh, for your benefit as we go along. We begin with a summary of the description of these views that we gave in March. And then we're going to uh, once again come to the refutation of these two views. And perhaps because we have a lot of points to go through, it would be helpful if you have your phones to be able to get those outlines out. But first of all, in terms of just reminding you of what these views are, we looked at the day-age view. And prominent proponents of this view are Hugh Ross and Gleason Archer. And according to this view, the days of Genesis 1 and 2 are long periods of time of indefinite length. This view is an attempt to harmonize Genesis 1 with the evidence which the majority of science scientists believe supports an old earth, older than 8,000 years. It's thought that the biblical account of creation is not in conflict with the dogma of evolutionary geology, requiring millions, even billions of years to account for the geological strata. And Genesis 1, it is said by these interpreters, represents six long periods of time in correct sequence. And proponents of this view, they argue that the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day, this word is used to refer to periods of indefinite length. And they cite certain texts in the Bible, in which it is not twenty-four hour days. The word Yom is used to describe a period larger. Genesis 4.3, in the process of time, literally in the days. It came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Isaiah forty four and verse two. In that day, it's a singular, it's of One particular day in that day, but it's obviously a span of time that's being described. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And if you just flip over, if you have your Bible still open to Genesis, and Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, we have an example of the word day being used in a different way. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth, and the heavens. And in that day, or the day, it refers, you see, to the work of creation described in chapter 1, and the whole work is obviously longer than one regular day. So it's argued that the days of Genesis 1 should not be understood as regular days that we experience, but as days from God's perspective, which can include long periods of time. For as 90 Psalm 90 and verse 4 puts it, a thousand years in God's sight are like yesterday when it is past. So just, that's in summary, the, the day age view. But now I want to just summarize also the analogical day view. Older representatives of this view are William Shedd and Franz Delitzsch. Perhaps some of you have heard of the Kylan and Delitzsch commentary. Well, he is the Delitzsch of, of those two. And it was set forth this view in an article in 1994 and also in a book published in 2003 by John Collins, who was professor of Old Testament at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. This is a PCA Presbyterian Churches in America Seminary. An analogy, and that's just, we have to explain what an analogy is because this is the analogical view, an analogy is a comparison between two unlike things, but there's something about them that is alike. There is an analogy or a comparison in some particulars. And according to this view, the days in Genesis one, they are not human days, but God's days. They're different, but in some respects they're similar. And so there's an analogy here. There is a comparison between them. In Exodus 31 and verse 17, the Lord says about the Sabbath, it is a a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. And so that text speaks about God being refreshed upon that day. But God doesn't get weary like you and I do. And so his refreshment, therefore, is analogous, you see, but it's not identical to the refreshment that we get because we need to be refreshed because we get so worn out. And therefore, it's not identical, but analogous. And it's argued that likewise, the days are analogous. They're not identical. And in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, the command about the Sabbath day, it is argued that the pattern of God's work and rest, this is analogical. It's not identical. It's not identical in terms of six 24-hour days and then a day of rest as it's supposed to be for you and me. And it's argued that the reason given for the Sabbath keeping in Exodus chapter 20, it represents an analogy. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And the pattern of God's working and resting during the creation week, this is an analogical pattern, it's argued. It's not an identical pattern, because the days are God's days, not human days. So they argue. And they also argue, and especially John Collins argues this way, that Genesis 1 is exalted prose, as he puts it, and therefore it ought not to be taken literally. He argues that it's not myth, it's not poetry, but it's not regular prose either. Prose, as you remember, is the kind of literature that tells a story, or or just narrates, or it's, it's different than poetry, in other words. And so he calls it exalted prose. And this means that a literal hermeneutic should not be applied to the text. And therefore, the author is not concerned about giving a precise description of the processes that took place during creation. And also, according to this view, the days of Genesis 1 represent six chronological successive periods of, of undefined length. These days are to be understood in the chronological sequence, although there might be overlap between them. And according to the Presbyterian Churches in America Creation Study Committee, you see this has been hotly debated, and this came out in 2000, the days are God's work days, which are analogous and not necessarily identical to our work days Structured for the purpose of setting a pattern for our own rhythm of rest and work. These days are broadly consecutive, that's the words they use. That is, they are taken as successive periods of unspecified length. But Genesis 1 allows for the possibility that parts of the days may overlap or that there might be logical rather than chronological criteria for grouping some events in a particular day. So these are these two views: the day-age view and the analogical day view. But now we want to come once again to a refutation of these two views. And I want to remind you of a couple that we already went through, and we, we, you know, I don't remember what I preached hardly last week, let alone eight months ago. And so I trust you'll bear with me as we maybe don't re-preach everything, but at least give you the essence of what we went through back in March. And in the first place, the proponents of these views, they are driven by a desire to show how Genesis 1 doesn't contradict valid scientific methods. You see, they're driven by science to come up with this view. That's the whole point we're making here. What is it that drives this interpretation? Is it modern science? Or is it a straightforward understanding of the text? Which is it? But John Collins, whose views that we've just summarized, is very concerned about the relationship between the validity of modern scientific methods and faith. And, for example, he argues that it's a problem if God created with the appearance of age. You see, young earth creationists like us, we believe God can make things that look old, even though they are brand new in terms of having been just created. And why, we ask, is it not a problem when God makes a mature man and a mature woman? He didn't create babies, a male and a female baby. He created some creatures that had the appearance and, in, and they looked like they were older. So why couldn't he do that with any other thing that he created? McCollin's argument, it appears to be controlled by science, you see, rather than a straightforward reading of the text. And when did this whole rush you see to embrace this day-age theory come out? The mad dash to come up with these theories—it only took place when Darwin's theory of evolution burst upon the scene. And it's as plain as the nose that's on the end of my on, in the front of my face that people that invented these theories, people that have perpetuated these theories, they've been influenced by influences outside of the Bible. It's that that's driven them. It's not that they saw something in the Bible and then they were driven to say something that they had never said before. It was only after the rise of the uniformitarian geology with its long ages that theologians resorted to hermeneutical gymnastics to try to explain away the clear teaching of Genesis 1. And both the day-age theory and the analogical day theory they were completely unknown for centuries, for a millennium and a half, to all the church fathers, to all the reformers. None of the reformers, they thought up this theory. None of the reformers said, oh, you know, I saw something in Genesis 1 that I'd never seen before. And they came up with this, this uh, day age theory. No, it never happened. And so you wonder if for a millennium and a half, all the people, all the theologians that are poring over the Bible, they would miss this basic fact that God had made the world not just in six days, but in six ages. Why didn't they see that if it's actually in the Bible? And you contrast this with Gleason Archer, a proponent of this day-age theory. He writes from a superficial reading of Genesis 1, the impression would seem to be that the entire creative process took place in six 24-hour days. And if this was the true intent of the Hebrew author, this seems to run counter to modern scientific research, which indicates that the planet Earth was created several billion years ago. So he says this is a superficial reading of the, I'd say it's a straightforward reading. It's what's there. And you see he's been driven, you see, by this idea of several billions of years. And as one writer put it, therefore, it is as if these theologians view nature as the 67th book of the Bible, albeit with more authority than the other 66 books of the Bible when it comes to creation. But then, by way of refutation, and we also mentioned this eight months ago, but I want to summarize it again, the ordinary biblical use of the word day in the Bible refers to 24-hour solar days. How does the word yom, the Hebrew word yom, translated day, how is it used? It's used throughout the Bible to refer to 24-hour solar days. And the exceptions are indicated plainly from the context. This Hebrew word for day, whether it's in the singular or in the plural, it occurs 410 times in the Bible outside of Genesis 1. So you Take out ones that are here in this chapter, and there's 410 times in which the word is used. And in particular, it's used 410 times with a number or an ordinal attached to the word. So we're only counting those times when it said the first day or it said the second day or day one or day two. 410 times in that way. And used in this manner, and that's the way it's used in Genesis 1, it is universally in scripture referring to a normal solar day. And then you take references to evening plus morning where, without the use of a day. This occurs 38 times outside of Genesis 1. At every single time without exception, it refers to a normal normal length day. Evening plus morning, with day. This occurs 23 times outside of Genesis 1. And again, every single time without exception, it refers to a normal length day. Night with day. This occurs 52 times outside of this chapter. Again, every single time without exception, it is a normal 24-hour day. Now these statistics are staggering. We're talking about hundreds of uses. And they show us that there's no reason in the text to deny that the creation of the days in Genesis 1 were ordinary days in length. Scripture is absolutely consistent in the use of these words and phrases in this way. Thus, the denial of ordinary days, it is something that's being imposed from the outside upon the text in Genesis 1. Now, of course, there are places where the word day is used differently in the Bible. But when this takes place, two things are true. The first place, the word day, it's not used in these places in the same way as it's used in Genesis 1. It's not said day one with a numeral, or an ordinal. Or it's not paired with the word night. And then secondly, the context makes it plain that the word is being used in a different way. It's being used in a figurative way. In some places, the word is used of a period of undefined length. Psalm 90, verse 9, you read, Our days are passed away in your wrath, referring to our life. And in the, these cases, day, it still means a finite succession of normal days, but not by any stretch of the imagination, vast ages. He, he doesn't say, well, our days are passed away. We live for billions of years We've got these ages that we live, but they're even they're finite. That's not what he's saying, obviously. It's still limited. In Genesis 4, 3, the process of time, literally the process of the days, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. And the context makes it clear that an indefinite number of days are in view. But again, it isn't eons of time, even then. Second Peter 3.8 is another example of the word being used in a sense that's different than 24 hours. A day with the Lord is a, as a thousand years. But again, it's not used in the way which it's used in Genesis 1. The context clearly indicates that the normal historical literal significance is not intended by Peter in that place. This kind of exceptional use cannot be legitimately read back into the numbered sequences that we have in Genesis chapter 1. The seven creation days of Genesis 1 and 2 cannot mean 7,000 years or 7 million years or 7 billion years. There's absolutely nothing in the context of those chapters to indicate that as a proper interpretation. But now... I want to come to a third argument, and this is something we didn't get to in our last sermon on this subject. The order of the days in Genesis 1 does not fit the evolutionary hypothesis, evolutionary theory. The order of the creative events in Genesis 1 is very different from the accepted order of fossils in the rock strata representing the various geological ages, according to the evolutionary a theory. And we're going to have more to say about this as we actually start going through these days, how they don't fit. But I want to just point out here that the theory of evolution, it postulates that the very first living organism was a little cell. You know how they're looking on Venus. They think, well, there's maybe some liquid on Venus, and even though it's 800 degrees. Maybe there's a little cell there somewhere around that's kind of bopping around and all the bubbles there. And there's going to be life there perhaps after a few billion years. And so that's what their their assumption, as you see, always is. They're looking for little scraps of water on Mars, you know. And uh, this is what they're they're hoping that someday they're going to have some proof of evolution starting in some other place in the universe. And it all starts from a little single cell, and after that, little little living creatures evolve in the seas long before land plants and animals, and then longer still before trees. But Genesis one reveals that God created land plants including trees first. Not something that came way later, as the evolutionary biologists uh, insist. And furthermore, as Jonathan Sarfati points out, evolution teaches that ixthesaurs and other marine reptiles evolved from land reptiles and that whales evolved from land mammals, which had evolved from other land reptiles. In day ages they dutifully claim that the former were created after the latter. and Similarly, evolutionists, they believe that the birds and the predators these evolved from the land reptiles while bats evolved from the land mammals. That's the order that they see in the, the geology that they find. But Genesis explicitly teaches that God made the sea and he made the flying creatures on day five The day before he made the land creatures, you see, on day six. You see, the evolutionists, they turn it exactly opposite. And this has led to the very imaginative scripture twisting by these interpreters. These eon days, they are now said to be overlapping rather than actually sequential. And then there's this problem. If the plants on day three were separated by millions of years from the birds and the nectar bats. Did you know that there's bats that are like bees, that they help uh, pollinate things? And there's nectar insects. And all of that, that was created on on day six. It's all necessary for for pollination. But how do these plants survive when they're created, not on day six, but before that, in the, the creation week? And this problem would be especially acute, you see, for those species with what we call a symbiotic relationship. There are, there are creatures that depend upon one another. There's a certain moth, for instance, that depends upon a yucca plant, and the yucca plant depends upon the moth. And all those symbiotic types of relationships, they fall apart if you try to follow strictly the order of the days that are set forth in Genesis chapter 1. But then, in the fourth place, by way of reputation... These theories, they assume that death was natural before the fall. And that death is good. This is a very important point here, theologically. They assume that all these creatures are dying out. You see, that's why we got these fossils. And the geological ages that are presupposed by the day age and analogical days theories, these ages are predicated on the fossil record. And the fossils all testify unequivocally of the reign of suffering and death in the world. Got these creatures that have these like twelve inch long teeth, you see. And these are types of teeth that are not for eating plants, but they're for tearing flesh apart. It's obvious that these things were eating each other and preying each other, you know, before they were buried in the strata of the earth. And while the death of plants, you see, might not be associated with suffering, the fossils reveal an abundance of carnivorous animals that survived by tearing apart other animals. And so these theories, they accept, therefore, the existence of suffering and death before sin came into the world. And that's an important thing for us to notice. But the first recorded death of a living creature in the Bible it occurred it occurred after Adam and Eve had sinned when God killed an animal to make clothing for Adam and Eve. And God told Adam and Eve about the forbidden tree, the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Genesis 2:17. That's when death is going to be introduced. And the rest of creation was also cursed as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, for God said, "Cursed is the ground for your sake." And toil you should eat of it all the days of your life. In Romans 8, verses 19 to 22, if we had time, we'd read that whole passage. But it makes it very plain that all creation was, and here I quote, subjected to futility. It was enslaved by what calls the bondage of corruption. And it groans and travails and labors with birth pangs, again, until now. So Paul is saying that the suffering and the misery that's come on the earth, it's come because of Adam's sin. It's not that it happened for billions of years before Adam even existed. It came after Adam had sinned. And yet according to these theories you see about the whole creative process, while for millions of years animals are tearing each other apart and dying, God says it's all good. You come to the end of each, each day, he says it's good. Comes to the end of the whole week, he says it's good. And how can it be good, this suffering and this, this death that's taking place? These theories, they assume that suffering and death, they are integral to part of God's creative work. And so how, how can God look on all that with great satisfaction and say it's all good? That, that's almost like a sadist to say, I like seeing people tear each other apart. That's really good. Certainly, this is a contradiction of biblical terms. So these theories, they assume that death was natural before the fall and that it's good. And this is utterly contrary to the rest of the Bible. But then in the fifth place, these theories undermine the biblical doctrine of man. Most day age and analogical day advocates, they don't, they don't propose a full-blown evolutionary theory. and Especially they want to protect the individual creation of Adam and Eve, because these are evangelicals, let's remember, that argue for this theory. But they can't escape a big difficulty here. They accept an old Earth view because they believe the rocks are old. But some of the rocks that they think are older than 8,000 years, they contain fossils of undoubted Homo sapiens. And this would involve humans dying before Adam and Eve sinned. So they couldn't be their descendants, you see. And this doesn't square with the biblical teaching about the fall and death coming as a result of the fall. And even those that seem averse to embracing the full-blown theory of evolution, they they tend to fudge on this issue here. And and Let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So how did God form man? He didn't just speak him into existence like everything else. He got his hands dirty, so to speak. He formed Adam of the dust of the ground. Now John Collins this advocate of the analogical view, he argues that the dust that's mentioned here refers to the loose soil from which God formed Adam. And he says that, therefore, Adam was a fresh creation. He wasn't just an upgrade of a, of a former hominid. But in a recent work on the historicity of Adam, you see, they, they, they find out that some of these things can't be held very consistently, and so later on, Collins is a little bit more open to being flexible about how God created Adam. And in fact, he argues that Genesis 1 to 11 should not be read as, should, it should be read as non-literal. It should be read as pictorial and symbolical literature. And this only leaves us, you see, he says, with a historical core, as he puts it in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. And the effect of all of this is that we should not read the description about how God created Adam too literally as a description of the physical and biological account of how these how, how Adam came into to being. We shouldn't be too literal about it, you see, he says. Now, he does maintain that Adam's formation was not just a purely natural process and that the special origin of man sets him apart from the other animals, but... Since Genesis 2-7 shouldn't be taken too literally, he says, the way is open to entertain other scenarios about how God might have made the first couple, including the possibility that God took two formerly existing hominoids. You see, they had evolved up to a certain level. He took two of them, and he made them special. He made them out of all these creatures that look like people. He, He took two of them, and he made them into Adam, and then he... And then he made made it to Eve. And the implications of this is staggering. Not only does God not create Adam from the dust of the ground, but he doesn't create Eve from, from his side. And if God set apart two hominoids, you see, as the first couple, Paul is mistaken. When Paul himself, the inspired apostle, says, God created Adam first, and then Eve. And if you only see just a core of historicity in Genesis 1 and 2, one theological truth after another begins to crumble. And so the doctrine of man is is just obliterated by this ideological day theory. But now in the sixth place, the rationale that's been given for the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, and I'd like you to turn with me to that chapter, Exodus chapter 20, The rationale given for the fourth commandment contradicts these theories. Now in Exodus 20, of course, we have the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment begins with verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. So that's the essence of the command. But then he gives the reason for this in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now the crucial point here is that God's creative work, six days work, followed by rest, the day of rest, This is an example that is to be imitated by image bearers of God. Human beings are to imitate God. And out of all of God's creatures, mankind is so important to our omnipotent God that he arranged the whole creative week with this aim that he might provide an example. He set it up this way, for this reason, to be an example. And because God is infinite in wisdom and power... He could have created the earth in an instant. It didn't take him, he didn't need six days to do the job, you see. He could have created it in six seconds if he wanted to. Each of these days would just be narrowed down. One second he does it, and one part of it, and then the next second he does the rest. He could have done it maybe in six months or six years. He could have done it, you see, in other ways because nothing is poss- impossible to God. Luke chapter 1 and verse 37. And this forces the question upon us, why did God space this work out then over the period of six days? Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, it tells us that he did this with one great purpose in view. This was all set up for this purpose, for this goal, that he might provide a pattern of six days of work followed by one day of rest. And it's a pattern... That was to be imitated by mankind. From the very beginning, this has been the pattern for all mankind. And the very fact that the whole world goes by a calendar still that's divided into weeks with seven days, in spite of the way in which they try to say it's a C.B.E. now and it's not, it's not uh, A.D. after you know referring to after the after the coming of Christ. And B.C., before the coming of Christ, and they say B.C.E., Now the common error. They try to change all of that, but they haven't gotten rid of the seven-day week, have they? When, when do you ever expect to see a calendar that's not going to have seven-day weeks? It's all started, you see, right back at the beginning of, of creation. And God in His providence has preserved that testimony to what he had done right at the very beginning. And this poses a real problem for the day-age and analogical views. If God created the universe in 6,000 years or it took him 6 million years or maybe 6 billion years followed by a rest of 1,000 or maybe a million years or maybe a billion years of, of rest after those 6 billion years, how can this be an example of six days work followed by a day of rest? How can that be an example of that? Remember, the rhythmic pattern of six days rest, or six days work and then followed by one day of rest, this was to provide a framework by which we might have communion with God. We get distracted by all the things we do throughout the rest of the week. And he wants to spend a day with you and me. This is why the Sabbath is so hated, because it's for the very purpose of spending a whole day. And men hate God, don't they, by nature. And so God says, here's a wonderful thing I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a day in which you're going to spend the whole day with me. This man says, I hate your guts. I don't want to spend a whole day with you. I want to do my own thing on that day. I don't want to have that kind of a day. That's why it's hated so much, you see. And yet that was God's purpose of that day of rest. And he wants to provide this rhythm, you see, into our calendar that we might have communion with God. And if God's example was the example of six ages of work, whether it's millions of years in each age or whatever, followed by one age of rest, we could, also, we could conclude that it, maybe it'll be the best thing for me to now work for 60 years. That'll be my work time. That's the ages of the work in my life. And then I'll give God the next 10 years, my, my, my seventh decade. And to modern man, this, this is a great plan. I get to get the best years of my life when I could really do whatever I want. I'm not old, and creaky, and all that. And I'll, and I'll save the rest of it the last, uh, for the last decade of my life. I'll give that to God. Is this what would please God? Living for yourself and then enjoying what you want to for those years and then just giving God, you see, when you're getting old and, and worn out, then you'll give him a little bit at the end of your life? Obviously, that's not God's purpose, you see. But that's the message you get if you've got ages followed by an age. So let's, let's just not have it a week, let's just have it 60 years or whatever we want to structure it as. And by the way, this, exa- this divine example, it's not just for the Jews. God didn't set this up after He created the nation of Israel, it was given long before Israel was a nation, it was given to mankind. And the incarnation, God condescended to make Himself a, take to himself a human nature that he might redeem us, but also that Jesus might be a perfect example for us. And in similar fashion, the same God who could have made everything in an incident, he could have made it in just a second if he wished to, he condescended instead to stretching the work out over a period of six days in order that he might provide you and me with an example and I say these theories of this day age theory it's just just totally inconsistent with that basic principle that's set forth and it's most easily understood in that straightforward way that I've just described but now in the seventh place I want you to notice that the New Testament assumes the historical and chronological veracity or truthfulness of Genesis 1 and 2 now to people that accept the authority of the New Testament. This is a powerful argument. How does the New Testament interpret these chapters? That's to be our guide as to how we're to interpret those chapters. There is no greater authority, there is no greater authoritative guide as to how to interpret Genesis 1 to 11 than the way the New Testament interprets these chapters. In a careful study of the scattered allusions and references in the New Testament, to these first 11 chapters, they reveal a very consistent pattern. The New Testament invariably treats these chapters as actual history and straightforwardly accounted and recited history, not as a pious myth, not as a spiritual allegory, not as a poetic composition, but actual history. Jesus himself, he treated these early chapters as straightforward history every time. And so did the apostles. They appealed to the people and events of these early chapters of Genesis as real, not as just stories and myths. And they sometimes carefully noted the order of the events that took place. They're historical and they're put, therefore, in a proper order. And I could give you Scores of examples, but we don't have time this morning. But just to recite just a few examples, there are many that refer to the the general statement of the creation of the universe, the heavens and the earth. Acts four and verse twenty four: Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Acts fourteen fifteen: that you should turn from these vanities. Paul says to the to the heathens that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God who made heaven and earth and all the sea, and all things that are therein. And you come to the text of the New Testament about the creation of the first man, and the creation of the first woman, and of the fall that took place uh, shortly thereafter. So we read in Matthew nineteen four, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? He's talking about, you see, marriage and divorce. And if this is just ages, you see, how would that be instruction about sticking by your marital commitments? You don't just go divorcing people right and left. God's intention was he made the male and female there to commit to one another. And it's obviously history that's being referred to. First Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14. For Adam was first formed, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, because all sinned. Verse 19, Romans 5, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. There's a parallel between the historicity of Christ and the historicity of Adam. And if you want to just make this all just kind of a vague, you see, you know, kind of a spiritual poetry, this is comparing an actual, are you going to, have to, are you going to say that Jesus is, is also mythical? That he, is, you see, just an idea you see, and Paul draws it No, both of them are historical. Jesus is historical, and he is the second Adam who stands in the place of the first Adam. They're both historical. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He refers to this as history. He doesn't see enough. There was a little bit of a nursery rhyme here. A little story that we we kind of learned. It was this idea about the serpent coming and talking to a woman. No, he, he speaks of it as history. And this assumes... The historical and chronological truthfulness of these early chapters of the Bible. And now we come to the eighth and final argument. The analogical debut it undermines the clarity or the perspicuity of Scripture. And this is an important point. It is exceedingly important to show that Genesis, like the rest of the Bible, It was written that we might read it and understand it. That's important. This is what we mean when we talk about the perspicuity of scripture. Perspicuity means clarity. It's not some kind of a complicated thing that nobody can understand except for a few experts. God's people didn't need to wait for thousands of years for the advent of modern science to figure out how to interpret these chapters. God intended that ordinary people using basic sound principles of interpretation, would come to understand the message of the Bible without needing some elite group to interpret it. And this is what we have in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Perhaps you could turn with me to that chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is... In the context of Paul's speaking about how Timothy, from a child, had been taught in the scriptures. And then he says, after he makes that point, and that from childhood, verse 15, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, that includes Genesis 1, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, Paul says here that all the Bible is given that you might read it and that you might, as you read it, be reproved, that you might be corrected, that you might be instructed. It was given for that purpose. Now, in Reformation times, the elite group that claimed to have a monopoly on interpreting the Bible was the Roman Church. But nowadays, you see, the elite group that many circles cite is the scientists. We need the scientists to tell us how to interpret these early chapters in Genesis. And the claim of the long-age Christians is that, in effect, ordinary people, they can never understand the Bible without the insights you see that have now been given by the scientific experts. These ones tell us, these experts, about chronology and about astronomy and about geology and about rock strata and biology and all this kind of stuff. And we, It's hopelessly impossible for us to understand these early chapters, they say, until we understand these evolutionary ideas and these scientific uh, achievements. Then we can understand the meaning of the Bible. With the analogical day view, it runs contrary, directly counter, you see, to this idea of the Bible being a clear book, a perspicuous book. Its whole approach assumes that the meaning attached to God's words as he intends them is very different from the way that man understands those words as he just reads them. If an ordinary man picks up the Bible and he reads the first two chapters of the Bible, you see, according to these theorists, it's hopelessly impossible for an ordinary person to understand what the Bible is saying here because he's, he has a misconception about what the word day means. We have to come up with these highfalutin ideas about what day means and how it's an age and how we, reasons why we have, it's an age and going to all kinds of evolutionary biology and geology. Dear people of God, God gave us the Bible to teach the ordinary man of God as we just read. He meant for all believers to read it and he meant for all believers to understand the basic message of what they read. The ordinary man or woman who reads Genesis 1 and that person uninstructed in the complex relationship between modern science and the Bible would never imagine that the Bible talking about a process that took billions of years. Martin Luther never opened up the Bible and says, Oh, this took millions of years. I see it now for the first time. It's right there in the text. No, it wasn't there in the text. And so he never imagined that this idea was there. And the idea that Genesis 1 is elevated prose and not normal prose, it leads one away from an understanding of the text as something that describes what God actually did in creation. Collins mentions the possibility that the days in Genesis 1 might overlap one another. You've got the problem you've seen about the sequence. And so he says, Well, it's going to be a little bit mixed up here. We can change the order a little bit if we need to. And it was put in there for maybe literary reasons. And he raises the question as to whether or not therefore everything mentioned in Genesis one in connection with a certain day actually happened on that day, or that age period. Instead, he thinks that the author he grouped things maybe on certain things for logical reasons and rather rather than historical reasons. And he stresses that the style of these chapters is elevated prose, and therefore we shouldn't read it too literally. In these chapters, he says, they're not so concerned about how God actually created the world, but rather it's, it, it's the truth value of what you read here. And the approach this is approach to our people is really dangerous. It no longer understands the text to be saying what it actually says—that God actually created the world in the way He said He created it in Genesis chapter one. Now, one of the reasons why our theme is so important is that unless we see that Genesis 1 has been given that non-specialists could read it, we fail to see that the Bible is to be taken seriously when it speaks to the real world. If we avoid dealing with what the Bible says about creation because only the specialists can understand it because they've got these scientific degrees, then we will reinforce the tendency of of the thinking of people. This is the way people think that are out there that religion has nothing to do with the real world. Therefore, don't bring it into politics, don't bring your, your religious views into any other aspect of life. It, you keep that to your, to your sanctuary or your little private altar. It has nothing to do with the real world. And if we leave it all to the specialists, you see, as Douglas Kelly puts it, we put scripture and Christianity into a stained-glass closet that does not impact the space-time realm. And to assume that the early chapters of Genesis are not historical and they're just spiritual truths that are there, this is to relegate the Bible and to relegate religion to the realm of the ethereal, to the unreal. And people that think they can adjust the message of Genesis to suit modern evolutionary dogma, to gain credibility in the world, instead of gaining the world for the church, they empty the church into the world. That's the result for the past century and a half the driving motive of liberalism has to been making is to make the message easier to believe by people that now believe in evolution and so we want to make it a little easier to believe what the bible has to say but what what has been the result it's only it succeeded in making christianity not worth believing anymore it's just taken away everything that you they need to believe and because of this people have been leaving liberal churches in their droves And the fact that Genesis' creation account can be understood by the ordinary believer, it doesn't mean that we will ever fully understand everything that God did when he created the heavens and the earth. And at best, you see, empirical science can only take us a short distance in our search for the ultimate meaning of the physical universe. We take out our microscopes, we take out our telescopes, and we we see, you see, as unbelievers see, the unbelieving scientists, they, they won't believe anything that they can't see in a microscope or in a telescope. But how arrogant this is. That somehow we're going to put God under our microscope. Somehow we're going to put God into our little telescope. And then somehow with little, our little puny scientific instruments, we're going to figure it all out about origins and about the age of the universe and the like. The doctrine of creation, it takes us beyond the things that microscopes can see, telescopes can see. It takes us to a source, you see, that is unlimited. It takes us to a glorious God who is not dependent upon anything outside of himself. It leads us into the sacred realm of the infinite. And therefore we ask, to whom then will you liken God? or what likeness will you compare to him? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes in high, and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and his strength of his power. This doctrine, it serves to display the glory of God, the majesty of God. It takes us into the realm of the infinite that's beyond us. It takes us to that place where we, instead of saying that we, we're the scientists that are really smart, we got it all figured out, it takes us to the place where we prostrate ourselves in humility in abject worship of the great and the glorious God who made the heavens and the earth. And he made the first man and the first woman. God's aim in giving us these accounts is to teach us to worship him. May we not miss that point. May you and I learn to live lives of worship. And may we count this special day of worship to be a special, precious day that we will be careful about. May the Lord help you and me to do just that. Let's pray. Father we thank you and bless you that you gave us this straightforward account of what you have done you haven't explained how you did it all and we don't need to know how you did it all for us to believe in you for us to worship you for us to obey you help us O Lord to submit our minds to your mind help us to submit ourselves as your creatures to you our creator help us O Lord to remember our Creator, the days of our youth, and not only then, but also the days of our advanced age. Help us, O Lord, to live lives of worship before you as our Creator. And how we do thank you, Lord God, that although we sinned against you, you sent us a Redeemer, that there might be a restoration of creation, and that you might restore that creation in us, and also in the new heavens and the new earth wherein shall dwell righteousness hasten that day we pray O lord when that day will come reach out we do pray through us and through the ministry of this church to touch the hearts and the lives of many to bring them out of darkness and into your marvelous light to come and worship you the maker of heaven and earth we pray these things in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ amen and look for that.